0: Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Hebrews chapter 9 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one, please, from the pew rack right in front of you so that you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Hebrews chapter 9. Last week, as we were studying through Hebrews, we talked about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that is purchased with His blood. We talked about the centrality of the blood of Jesus for the message of the gospel. And we vowed to never stop talking about the blood of Jesus. We agreed together that we will be, if necessary, the last church in Harrisburg, the last church on the planet, if necessary, talking about the blood of Jesus. We're not going to give that up. We're not going to compromise talking about the blood of Jesus By way of application last week, I talked to you about these two um, huge questions that we get asked often when we go to fast food restaurants. Number one, what do you need? And number two, how can I help? And we talked about how we need to think deeply about those questions, about what, what do we ultimately need? Well, it's not coffee or cheeseburgers that we ultimately need, right? It is ultimately forgiveness of sins. That's what we need. And how can we help? Well, we can't really help. We can't help each other. We can't help ourselves. We need the Lord Jesus to provide what only he can provide in helping us and saving us and rescuing us. We talked about how we need to consider those questions for ourselves, but we also need to be asking our neighbor that question. What do you need? And when we ask that question, we want to listen to the answer. We want to listen to the answer carefully, and we want to steer the discussion toward the ultimate need of forgiveness of sins. And we also want to say with sincerity, how can I help? We want to ask our neighbor sincerely, how can I help you? And we want to seek in every way to meet the needs that they have, but we need to recognize in so doing that we ultimately need to introduce them to Jesus who can provide only, only he can provide for their ultimate need. And so we want to be having that discussion with our neighbor as well. This week, we're going to continue to look at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. We'll consider what exactly was accomplished through his death and we will rejoice over the fact that His is a once-for-all death on the cross for our sins. So let's check it out together. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28 today is what we'll study. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. This is what God's Word says. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, ...a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself... And in as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful uh, for your word today that teaches us, gives us such, such insight into the... Sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And we pray that you will open our eyes to see clearly today and open our ears to hear clearly today what you have to say to us. And God, we pray that you will open our hearts like you did Lydia's 2000 years ago, like you opened her heart to receive the message. We pray that you open our hearts to receive the message that we would respond appropriately, properly, to what you have to say to us today. God, we want to, we want to see you. We want to have an encounter with you and we want to be changed forever because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you notice, verse 23 starts with the word, therefore. We always try to look carefully at that word when it comes up in scripture because we know that that means that what he's about to say is connected to something that has just been said. In fact, this reaches back to the argument that we looked at last week. Last week we said that even under the old covenant, forgiveness required blood. In fact, that's, that seems to be the repetitive lesson of the old covenant. That sin brings death and forgiveness requires blood. Cleansing required blood. If the people were going to be clean, even under the old covenant, blood had to be shed. And then we want to consider why that is the case. And I think a scholar named R. Kent Hughes says it well. This will be on the board when he says the old covenant sailed on a sea of blood for two vast reasons. First, to emphasize the seriousness of sin. The Bible takes sin seriously. I think that's an understatement. The Bible takes sin seriously more than any other religious scripture. Sin alienates one from God. Sin is rooted in the hearts of humanity. Sin cannot be vindicated by any self-help program. Sin leads to death, and it will not be denied. The second reason is the costliness of forgiveness. Death is the payment. It will either be Christ's life... Or ours. So the entire Old Testament system, the entire Old Covenant sacrificial system was set up to teach us about the seriousness of sin and the costliness of forgiveness. And so when in verse 23 the author says, therefore, he's reaching back to that talk. And he talked there about the cleansing of people. But in the text today we'll talk about the cleansing of things. The bottom line is, if there's to be any cleansing or any forgiveness, there must be bloodshed. Look at verse 23. He says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I think there are a couple of things to notice in this text right here. First, the Old Testament tabernacle was a copy. It was a shadow of the heavenly reality. And this is not a new idea in Hebrews. He's been talking about this for quite some time. In fact, as we've talked through Hebrews, we've said it's not so much a linear argument as it is a symphony that just continues to build and build and get fuller and fuller and more complicated. There will be sections that are brought forward louder than others, and there will be sections that are quieted down uh, quieter than others at different times. And and this theme, this melody about the the earthly tabernacle being a copy of the heavenly one and these earthly sacrifices being a shadow of Christ's sacrifice to come, that is a theme and a melody that has been playing throughout the letter. And it will continue to play. Uh, In fact, maybe we think of this particular theme as the clarinet section. Over there playing this tune the entire time. And sometimes it's loud and sometimes it's soft. But it's always there. That the earthly tabernacle, the earthly system was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly reality. Second thing we see in this particular verse is that the Old Testament tabernacle and all of its furnishings had to be cleansed. They had to be cleansed in order to be part of the people's worship of and encounter with the holy God. And that cleansing of the tabernacle and all its utensils and furniture was done with blood. The blood of animals was required in order to cleanse those things. Third, if the heavenly reality is greater than the earthly copy then the sacrifice to cleanse the heavenly reality had to be greater than the sacrifice that cleansed the earthly reality. Does this make sense? Let me say it another way. In other words, the blood of bulls and goats may suffice for the cleansing of the earthly copy, but something better is required to cleanse the heavenly reality. And that something better, I'll just give you the punchline ahead of time, is the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed for us on the cross. But all of this talk about the cleansing of tabernacle, whether it's the earthly copy or the heavenly reality, begs the question of why? Why does the heavenly reality need to be cleansed? Exactly how did the heavenly tabernacle become defiled in such a way that it would need to be cleansed? Let's deal with that question for a little bit. The short answer to that is it's because of us. The reason why there has to be a cleansing of the heavenly tabernacle is because of us and our dirtiness and our sin. Just like the problem in the Old Testament tabernacle was not the sin of scarlet threads or goat skins, or bronze, or copper, or silver, or any other metal. Those things were not the problem. Those things were not dirty in themselves, but rather the people sinned, the people were defiled, and so the things that they used in connection with the Lord had to be cleansed because of their sin. In fact, go back to Hebrews 9, 18 to 22, and we'll see that it's the sin of man that must be dealt with. It's the sin of man that must be dealt with in the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. Look at Hebrews 9, 18 to 22. It says, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood, the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself. And all the people, both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant, which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. All things are cleansed by blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness is tied to our sinfulness, not the sinfulness of some thing. And so the blood was necessary to cleanse these things because of our sinfulness. And this is explicitly clear in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 is the passage that gives the instructions for the Day of Atonement sacrifice. We have talked about the day of atonement sacrifice over and over and over again as we've studied through Hebrews. It is absolutely necessary that we understand that context in order to understand what the author of Hebrews is teaching in the New Testament. And so one of the things that happens in Leviticus 16 is the cleansing of the tabernacle and all the stuff in the tabernacle. Not only is the sin of the people dealt with and not only are the people cleansed, but all the stuff is cleansed. And in Leviticus 16 it says, the stuff needs to be cleansed Because of the sin of the people. Not because it's dirty in itself, but because of our sin, the stuff needs to be cleansed. I think this will be on the board. Leviticus 16, starting in verse 16. It says this. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them. ...in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place... ...no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out... ...that he may make atonement for himself... ...and for his household... ...and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord... ...and make atonement for it... ...and shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat... ...and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times... ...and cleanse it, listen to this... ...cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel. And cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel he shall consecrate it. It's not that the altar is defiled in itself. It's that the people are defiled and the altar has to be cleansed because of them... N.T. Wright, this will be on the board also, sums it up this way. Why should the heavenly sanctuary need to be purified? What could have been wrong with it? The answer, it seems, is that there wasn't anything wrong with the heavenly sanctuary itself, but that it needed to be made ready for the arrival of people with whom there had been a very great deal wrong. Namely, sinful human beings. So catch that. The heavenly reality had to be cleansed in order to be prepared for us to enter in. And if you'll catch that idea, what what comes next in the text in Hebrews will make a whole lot more sense. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. We're not talking about earthly tabernacle here where Christ did his work. A mere copy of the true one. But into heaven itself. Jesus went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Again, the author is playing on the superior location of Jesus' work as our great high priest. Not the earthly tabernacle, but heaven itself. And the key to this verse, verse 24, and maybe the key to this whole passage is at the end of verse 24 when it says, Now to appear in the presence of God for us. He appeared in the presence of God for us. He cleansed the heavenly reality for us. John Piper in his sermon on this passage nails it when he talks about the importance of those two words in this text, for us. Jesus went into the heavenly tabernacle, cleansed it for us so that we could be brought in, so that we could be there. Why did it need to be cleansed? So that we could be there. Piper says, if you want to be, if you want to be made much of, Rather than having the mercy of God made much of, you will not want to listen to this. But if you love the mercy of God and admit the misery of your own condition, you will love this. Verse 24 says that Christ enters the holy place of heaven with his better sacrifice to appear in the presence of God for us. This means that he will cleanse us there. We are what needs cleansing. And to the degree that we might defile heaven, Christ in that sense cleanses heaven. And then Piper shifts gears and he talks about what a great hope this is for us. What a great invitation this is for us. And I wanna share this with you because it blew my mind and I hope it blows yours as well. And I hope that God somehow uses this maybe to bring someone to himself for the very first time. Read with me on the board here what John Piper says. Now listen to this. He is speaking to those of you or all of us in our clear moments who feel so dirty and so deeply bad that you would only pollute heaven if you got there. Oh, how many people are kept away from Christ because of this. I pray that you will see what an invitation this is. This is God's way of saying, come, you dirty ones. Come, you defiled, you deeply evil ones. Come, you who have soiled yourselves and who have, become, have been stained by others. Come to my heaven, for my son is there, and he has not died in vain. He stands guard over my holy place, not to keep you out, but to make you clean so that you can be with me in perfect holiness forever. Come. Don't you love that? He he stands guard over the holy place, not to keep you out but to make you clean so that you can come in. And so the invitation is come, no matter how dirty you are, no matter how dirty you feel, you're exactly the person that he says, come. And Jesus has always done this. When you read the gospel accounts, Jesus is always doing this. He's always going to the lowest, the least, the dirtiest. And he's saying, come, come be a part of my kingdom. Come be a part of what I'm doing. You don't see Jesus saying, you're too dirty. You see the Pharisees saying that all the time, right? They're the ones who are saying, no, 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 you're too young. No, 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 you've got a bad reputation. No, 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 you're too dirty. And then Jesus will turn right around and go to those same people and he'll say, you're the one, you're the one, come to me. In fact, a great example of this is in Luke chapter 5. It will be on the board also. There's a guy named Levi. Levi, anybody know who that is, by the way? We also know him as Matthew. You know what he did for a living? He's a tax collector. How many of you like tax collectors? And tax collectors in Jesus' day were a thousand times worse than tax collectors today. They were were collecting taxes for the enemy, the oppressing enemy of Rome. They were collecting taxes for them so that they could pay their armies to invade, occupy, and oppose and oppress God's people. And Levi was one of them, a tax collector. It says he gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people, other people. I wonder who those were, right? A great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes, those are religious elite, religious leaders, squeaky clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. The Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Don't you love that? Jesus surrounding himself with those people. And when the squeaky clean religious types question him about it, why do you spend so much time with those people? He says, This is what I'm about, this is my mission. It's not people who are well that need to go to the doctor. It's people who are sick that need to go to the doctor. And I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to myself. And so I want you to hear Jesus saying that today to sinners like you and like me. Jesus is saying, come, come to me and I'll make you clean. Come to me and I'll give you rest and I'll save your soul. This is a great invitation in verse 24. Look at verse 25. It says, nor was it that he would offer himself often... As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Here what we see is a continued comparison and contrast with the work of Christ and the work of the priest on the day of atonement. That guy in the tabernacle would do his work often. Year after year he would come trembling into the presence of God with the blood of bulls and goats. Not his own blood, the blood of an animal. He would come trembling into the presence of God. Not so with Jesus. It's different with Jesus. He goes confidently into the presence of God once for all by virtue of his own blood, the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, to make atonement for sinners like you and like me. There couldn't be a greater contrast between the work of the high priest on the day of atonement and the work of Jesus Christ when he gives himself on the cross for us. Look at verse 26. It says, otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. If Jesus' sacrifice was like those other sacrifices that happened in the tabernacle, he would have been having to do it over and over and over again since the beginning of time. Because long before the law existed, sin reigned. Long before God gave instructions about bulls and goats to be uh, slaughtered, and their blood sprinkled in the tabernacle, long before that ever happened, sin was reigning on the earth. And if Jesus' sacrifice was like those sacrifices, it would have had to have been done a lot more than 1,400 years. It would have had to have been done since the beginning of time. But that's not the way Jesus' sacrifice works. It's not done over and over and over again. And people who treat the Lord's Supper that way, There are people who believe that when the Lord's Supper is taken and presented to the people and eaten, that it is essentially sacrificing, crucifying Christ over and over and over again. That's not the way His sacrifice works. His once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient, and it never needs to be repeated. And how dare we step in and say that we should repeat it over and over and over again? We just need to remember the one sacrifice that was made for our sins All the Protestants should say amen at this point today. His sacrifice is not like that sacrifice. It doesn't have to be over and over. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Look at the end of verse 26. But now. This is, everything's changing. We're not talking about that old stuff anymore. We're talking about Jesus' sacrifice. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the contrast, and this is the glory of the gospel. But, changes everything. His sacrifice was one time, one sacrifice. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament were merely signs that were pointing toward the greater reality of Jesus. He says, that was all happening, but once, at the consummation of the ages, the real deal happened. Sure, there were lots of signs pointing toward it, but there was only one reality, and that reality is the sacrifice of Jesus. As I think about that, I think about uh, taking my kids to holiday world. We do, we do this every year. We drive the kids up to Santa Claus and we go to Holiday World and we have a great deal of fun. And just after you get on the interstate uh, north of Carmi, once you get on the interstate, there's a sign, right? A billboard for Holiday World. And my kids are always pumped about it. But it would be a really bad thing of me if we just drove up to Carmi and we got on the interstate and said, well, there it is, kids. There's the sign. And then we turn around and go home, Right? They don't don't want to see the sign. They want to go ride the rides. They don't want to just know about Holiday World that it's 72 miles up the road. That will not satisfy them. It gets them excited, right? It keeps them busy during that stretch of the ride that they know we're getting closer and closer and closer. But the ultimate satisfaction happens when we get to Holiday World. And that's the way the Old Testament worked. It was the signposts. It was the signs along the interstate saying, you're getting closer, you're getting closer, and something better is coming, and the reality is just around the corner, and Jesus is the consummation of all that, right? So look at the text and look at it with that light when he says, but now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The last part of that verse is huge. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I was reading an illustration about this this week that I thought was pretty good. The guy told a story about a doctor um, who worked a long time ago and, and he had a especially soft heart for poor people. And he would often spend his days and nights making house calls uh, to people who couldn't pay for his services. And he would go and he would take care of them and and see to to it that they got the care that they needed. And then at the end of the day, he would write out the bill and he would write in his own hand, forgiven, too poor to pay. And he made a practice of this throughout his life. A good part of his work was, was done for nothing, for people who couldn't pay. Well, when that doctor died, his wife had a whole different perspective on things. And when the doctor died, his wife started to look through some of these records and she was appalled at how much money he had just lost. So how much, how much money he could have had that he never collected that he just gave away to people like this. And so this woman went to court. She took all the records that the doctor had and she went to court trying to get these people who received care to pay for the care that they received. You catch the picture here? And the judge began to look over the evidence. And this is the way the story goes. The judge says to the wife, is this your husband's handwriting here in red? Did your husband write this forgiven, too poor to pay? And she replied, yes, it is my husband's handwriting. And the judge responded this way. Then not a court in the land can touch those whom he has forgiven. Do you love that? If that's what Jesus has done, if he appeared in order to put away our sins, then not a judge in the land can undo what he has done. He has put our sins away by his appearing, by his death, burial, and resurrection. Our sins have been done away with. And Satan loves, like that wife, to come back and say, You got to pay for this, you got to pay for this, you got to pay for this. But the Father in heaven says, It's paid. It's paid. My son paid the price for that sin, and it's forgiven. And you're too poor to pay anyway. But my son has paid it for you. I think that's a fantastic picture of what's going on in this text when it says, but now, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what Jesus does. He puts it away. He puts it away. Look at verse 27. It says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment... So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. I will be honest with you, there is so much in this two verses, these two verses that we could spend all of next week talking about these things. Notice first he says, Death is appointed. It is appointed for men once to die. Have you thought about that recently? This is, this is one of the reasons why This is going to sound really morbid. I, I kind of like to preach funerals. I kind of like to preach funerals because I know when we go to the funeral home to mourn the loss of someone we loved or someone we knew well, we tend to not just think about the fact that they died, but we tend to think about the fact that we're going to die. And that is a prime posture to hear the message of the gospel. Now, on a typical Super Bowl Sunday... When people are thinking about a game that's coming this afternoon and all the food that they're going to eat, people aren't usually thinking about, I might die. So I'm here today to rain on your parade. (laughs) You might die. Let me take it a step further. You will die. I want you to think about that today. It's probably not what what you thought was coming today when you woke up this morning, but that's what we need to consider. The text says plainly, it is appointed for man once to die. And notice also that it says, die once. There is no such thing as this reincarnation where you you have around uh, in this life and then you die and you come back as something else or someone else and you give it a go again. And if you get better and better and better, one day you'll be delivered from this endless cycle. That is craziness. It makes good movies about dogs, but it's craziness. (laughs) It is unbiblical madness born probably in hell. At best, in the imaginations of men, death is appointed. Death is a one time deal, this text says clearly. The text also says clearly that after death comes judgment. After death comes judgment. That's the reality. It's not that you die and sleep eternally, it's not that you die and cease to exist. It's that you die and then you are judged. That's the way it is for every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet. You die, and then you face judgment. And I want us to consider that today because the text says it so plainly. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. That's what the text says, and we need to consider it. But look what he says next. He says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so also Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's huge, right? Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, who are these many whose sins he bears? Who are the many whose sins are borne by Jesus? Well, the answer is in the next couple phrases. It says, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Who were the ones who have their sins borne by Jesus? The ones who eagerly await him. The ones who trust in him. The ones who love him. The ones who follow him. Notice here that there's a big difference between eagerly awaiting for the return of Jesus and trying to get fire insurance from him so that you can escape hell. There are lots of people who want Jesus as their fire insurance so that they will escape hell. There are not so many people who are eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus because they know that that is the ultimate climax of their salvation. They are longing for the return of Jesus. In fact, I think there are more people in the church who hope secretly that Jesus delays his return for a long time so that they can continue to enjoy the things this world has to offer. Like I think if we knew that Jesus was coming back this afternoon, some of you would be bummed. Some of you would be bummed and say, oh, if he could just wait till 10 o'clock tonight, then I could see the game. <laughs> if that's you, I'm afraid for your heart. I'm afraid for your soul. The greatest prospect on this planet for those who love Jesus is that he would return now. That's what we long for. That's what we sing about. Oh, glorious day that will be. As long as it's after the Super Bowl or as long as it's after I get married or as long as it's after this. No, oh, glorious day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for your appearance. We long for the culmination of our salvation. We long, we long for you to settle the score and make everything right and reign forevermore. We long for that, right? That's the people whose sins were born by Jesus on the tree those who eagerly await his return. And notice what it says about his return. It says, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. In other words, when he appears a second time, it's not like when he appeared the first time. When he appears a second time, he doesn't come in humility in weakness, in shame. He doesn't come in suffering. He doesn't come in service. He comes in victory, right? It's not a baby born in a manger when Jesus comes the second time. It's a conquering king on a white horse with a big shiny sword that comes out of his mouth which, which, with which he will slay the nations. That's, that's the return of Christ. And if you're on the right side of that, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that's the best day for you. That is the day you are longing for. But I want to tell you, if you're on the wrong side of Jesus Christ on that day, you'll be food for the birds of the sky. Because he will destroy all of his enemies on that day. Scripture is clear about that. So when we think about the day of the Lord's return, does it stir in us a hope, a passion, and a desire, and an expectation? Or does it strike fear into us? fear of judgment it will be one or the other there's also something interesting going on here when he talks about him going to offer and then coming back there's a little bit of a parallel with the whole picture of the day of atonement sacrifice because on the day of atonement in the old testament the high priest would go in and everyone kind of held their breath as he went in but when he came out that meant that everything had gone well inside and that the blood had been accepted, and the sacrifice had gone okay, and that there really was atonement. And there's a similar picture going on here, that Jesus has gone into the heavenly holy of holies, and we all kind of hold our breath a little bit, but when he comes out, we will celebrate. When he returns, he will celebrate. John MacArthur describes that idea like this when he says, on the day of atonement, the people eagerly waited for the high priest to come back out of the most holy place. When he appeared, they knew that the sacrifice on their behalf had been accepted by God. In the same way, when Christ appears at his second coming, it will be confirmation that the Father has been fully satisfied with the Son's sacrifice on behalf of believers. At that point, salvation will be consummated. So we long for that day, right? And we sing about that day with great expectation. So here's a summary. A great way to look at this passage of scripture is to look at the three places where it says Jesus appeared. Or Jesus was manifested. One of them is in verse 24. In verse 24 of the text it says, Jesus appears in the presence of God for us. Jesus appears in the presence of God for us. And some scholars have talked about how that's that's his work of sanctification, that he appears in the presence of God for us so that we can have good relationship with God and fellowship with the Father. Um, In verse 26, it says he was manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Some scholars would say that's a reference to justification, that he took the penalty of sin out of the way and declared us to be righteous by the sacrifice of himself. And then in verse 28, it says Jesus will appear a second time for salvation. This is likely a reference to glorification. So we've got the three tenses of salvation here in the three appearings of Jesus. Once to bear our sins, to justify us. He appears in heaven at the throne of the Father for us so that we can have good communion, good fellowship with the Father here and now. And then he will appear again at the end of the age in order to set everything right and bring about the consummation of our salvation, which is glorification. So those three statements are pretty significant when we look at this text. By way of application, I want to say two things to two different groups of people. To you in this room today, I want to say that you are going to die. I don't want to deliver that as bad news. I want to simply deliver that as a statement of truth to you today. You are going to die. You are going to die. And after you die, you will be judged. All of you. All of us. We're going to die. And after then... We will be judged. And on our own, we're doomed at that judgment. On our own, if we were to say, oh, but my my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. No, they don't. They don't even come close. The scale doesn't even move when you put your good deeds next to your bad deeds. In fact, there's not even a scale for that. Right? On our own, at that judgment, we are doomed. The only hope we have is Jesus Christ. The only hope to escape Condemnation at that judgment is Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed in our place and his righteousness that is given to us by grace through faith. He's our only hope. And I want you to know that. You're going to die and then you will be judged and on your own you are doomed. But Jesus can rescue you. So repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Repent of your sins and place all of your weight on Christ. For hope in eternity, and I want you to be able to look at your neighbor and think those same things about him. Maybe it's your child. That's the way it is at my house. Three kids at our house that don't trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord haven't professed Him as their Savior and Lord. Maybe it's your coworker or your friend who is lost. Maybe it's the billions of people scattered around the planet who are lost and they're dead in their trespasses and sins, and they don't even have access to this good news. The reality is the same for them as it is for every one of us in this room. They will die. Your neighbor, your friend, your child, they will die. And after they die, they will be judged. And on their own, they're doomed. On their own, they are absolutely condemned. And Jesus is the only hope for them. And I want to be able to look at my children and my neighbors and see them that way. And I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to tell them about Christ who died on the cross for their sins about Christ who was buried and about Christ who rose again in victory over sin and death and hell I want to tell them about the good news that they can be saved from their sins as a gift of God's grace to be received by faith not by working and doing but by trusting in Jesus Christ I want to tell my children that I want to tell my neighbors that I want to tell the nations that because that's the only hope the common denominator is we'll die and we'll be judged And on our own, we're doomed. Only Jesus can rescue. So let's tell the world about him, right? Let's stand together and pray. God, we ask that you will help us to think carefully, accurately about these things in the next few moments. God, I pray that we will be able to... soberly reflect on the reality of our impending death. And the consequent judgment that we will all face after death. And God, I pray that you will teach us in a way that only you can, that on our own we are doomed at that judgment. And that only Christ is our hope. Only Christ can rescue us. Only Christ can save us from certain destruction. That only Christ died in our place and rose again. That only Christ can transform our hearts and give us hope. God, I pray that you help us to think about these things in our own lives. And help us to think about these things for the sake of our neighbors. To see them as people who will die and then be judged, people who on their own are absolutely doomed and Christ who alone can rescue them. Help us to see the world that way and respond by boldly and passionately proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to our neighbors and to the nations. And God, we pray that as we do that, you will rescue men women and boys and girls forever and ever for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.